British writer and broadcaster Derek Parker once quoted, Design is a journey of discovery. It is, indeed, a remarkable journey, and we as a designers have come a long way in proving ourselves as design evangelist or user advocate. But the exploration is pretty much going on. It feels great to be a part of this era where the concepts of usability and inclusivity are defining the way we think about our products. Design thinking is no longer just a term, rather a practice in most of the organizations. But how many of us actually know when it all began? So was it Steve Jobs at Apple? Design's a really loaded word. I don't know what it means. And so we don't really talk about design a lot around here. We actually just talk about how things work. Or was it our favorite Don Norman who started this? I was at Apple. And you know, we said, the experience of using these computers is weak. Uh, the experience, when you first discover it, when you see it in the store, when you buy it, when you ooh, can't fit it into the car, it's in this great big box, it doesn't fit into the car, and when you finally do get it home, you're opening it in the box up, and oh, it looks scary, I don't know if I dare put this computer together. All of that is user experience. It's everything that touches upon your experience with the product, and it may not even be near the product, it may be when you're telling somebody else about it. That's what we meant. Or few of us actually know that history has already paved the path for us. Marcus Garvey, a Jamaican-born political activist who was famous for his ideology well known as Garveyism that talks about empowerment and unification of African American. According to him, people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture are like a tree without roots. I'm Priya Saraswath and you're listening to the very first episode of Immersive Experiences. And today, you and I are about to embark on a journey. A journey full with fun, discovery, exploration. A journey to find our roots. Alright, so let's do some time travel and go back to 4000 BC. Time when an ancient Chinese philosophy, Feng Shui, was flourishing. I know what you're thinking how this is all related, right? But trust me, the connection is not as far-fetched as it sounds. Feng Shui translates as wind and water. As per some archaeological evidences, Feng Shui used to guide people to find a good place to live. The most influential aspect of finding a good place was the presence of qi or qi, which means energy. The faith was that practicing feng shui will improve the relationship between human and nature. Now, if we pause for a minute and take this concept and philosophy of feng shui to the modern design age, we can replace feng shui with design and can convert the earlier statement into improving the design will improve the interaction between a product and its user. Isn't it right? Feng Shui talks about everything from layout and frameworks to material and colors. Does any of those things sound familiar to you? Like many of our design goals, the end goal of Feng Shui was also to create a natural, harmonious and user-friendly surrounding. Personally, I think Feng Shui is very closely related to design and one of the first forms in which design thinking was done in our history. It is one of the earliest nods to UX as we know it today, isn't it? 
Anyways, let's move a little farther, around 5th century BC, the time of ancient Greeks. Evidences suggest that the Hellenic civilization in the 5th century used ergonomic principle in the design of their tools, jobs, and workplaces. Ergonomics, or human factors, are considered a crucial aspect of design today, especially in the work environment. Ergonomics is derived from two Greek words, ergon meaning work and nomoi meaning natural laws. It is a science of improving design of products to optimize them for human use. One of the strongest indications that ancient Greeks were familiar with the ergonomic principles came from the description of a surgeon's workplace by great Greek physician Hippocrates. Hippocrates, who is also known as father of medicine, he described how a surgeon's workplace should be designed. He referred to the lighting in the room. He talked about surgeon's position, how a surgeon may stand or be seated in a posture comfortable for him. He also mentioned the arrangement of tools in front of the surgeon and how they must be positioned in a way as to not obstruct the surgeon and also be within the reach when required. Aren't the same principle applied when we think about designing for digital interfaces and unique form factors today? Let's take an example of any map application, Google Map, Apple Map, and see how we use ergonomic principle in designing some of the important tasks like driving in our day-to-day -day life. These apps, as they are used on the go, they support one-handed navigation and quick gestures like swipe and no gestures like voice control as well to operate without causing distractions to the driver. What are these things? They are all ergonomics that we are talking today. And it comes in various forms. Physical ergonomic is one form and then there is cognitive ergonomics that we designers use a lot. You might have heard yourself calling out information overload or cognitive load during meetings to defend your designs, right? And now we all know that we were talking Greeks in all those meetings. Yes, ergonomics given to us by Greeks with love. And no matter how desperately I wanted to talk about this topic right now, I think we have to park it for later so that we can continue our expedition on tracing our roots and move to our next stop, which is Milan, 1430. It was the time of artistry and numerous innovations. I want to discuss one of the stories that I think really contributed to our problem solving and testing skills in the design field. Duke of Milan once asked Leonardo da Vinci to help his kitchen staff prepare an extravagant meal for a large dinner party. Leonardo at that time was popular among the people as one with a creative bent. He has gained this reputation through his many inventions including parachutes, tanks and gliders. He took this opportunity with his usual inventive flair and started putting together what we can call a revolutionary kitchen. So what makes this kitchen unusual? Let's try to visualize it. Don't forget that it's 1430, so things that seems common to you, people of that era were seeing for the first time. Now, imagine yourself inside this kitchen of 1430, and what you see is a series of conveyor belts running everywhere. The idea was to bring food to cooks faster. You can also see a large oven in the kitchen that can cook food at temperatures higher than normal, which was pretty unusual at that time. You can also see a sprinkler system around the kitchen. 
which definitely means safety in case a fire broke out. And finally, you are seeing some local artists working in the kitchen to make individual entree into work of art. And that's the tour of our kitchen. Finally, the day arrived and all royal guests gathered to enjoy the great feast. The comedy of error began with the conveyor belts as they started running erratically. First, they were too slow and then they, with a quick adjustment, they started running too fast. Soon, the food started piling up. The bell demanded another adjustment, but the next thing that went off the track was the oven. Though it worked as expected and as designed, but the cooks were pretty unfamiliar with this new equipment, so they burned the food. Besides burning the food, the new oven also caused a small fire that triggered the sprinkler system. The sprinkler system that were working perfectly ended up ruining most of the food. Finally, the artists who were carving the food were too slow. The guests who were promised an extravagant dinner were starving and most of them left without eating anything. The Duke of course was embarrassed and angry. Leonardo was publicly humiliated, but like always, he learned from these errors and went on inventing more great things in future. This was Leonardo's kitchen nightmare that offers several lessons that we can use today. First or foremost is usability testing, right? Why it is important to do it early and often is what we can learn from this whole episode of Kitchen Nightmare. If Leonardo had tested the changes in the kitchen well before the dinner day, he might have identified some of the problems in the setup, including the user's knowledge and experience. Another important lesson that we can learn from Leonardo's Kitchen Nightmare is don't afraid to fail or to be proved wrong. Because when your assumptions, hypotheses, and gut feelings are questioned, then you can realize that you're moving towards a best solution or an ultimate solution. Sounds a lot like things we preach all the time as UX designers, doesn't it? That brings us to the end of our very first episode. I don't want to overload you with all this information in one episode. Or in other words, I don't want to make you cognitively tired. Yes. I already started applying my knowledge from our ancestors, isn't it? But we'll keep the conversation going and in our next episode, we'll talk about some more incidents, people and places in history that contributed to our design knowledge today. And before you leave, just a last note. English is not my first language. So if you find it difficult to understand certain things, I totally get that. But at the same time, if you think the content was useful, feel free to check it on my blog on Medium. I'll be posting all this content there as well. So that's it. Stay tuned for more and keep those creative juices flowing. Until next time.